and we are live. Episode 104. 104 of the new season. And our very first nutritious, uh, nutrition, <laughs> nutritious, uh, nutritious, my God. <laughs> our very first nutrition uh, expert, Sophie uh, Medlin, I believe. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah. It's because I mess up like last names all the time. So I'm, I'm on a streak now of never saying wow. a last name wrong. But yeah, welcome to the Pleasure. show. Thanks for coming on. It's, it's, yeah. I'm excited to talk to a nutritionist mainly because I am, I mean, 100 episodes in, I guess we can all see I'm overweight. So let's get into it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Yes. Nice can, you, can you tell us a little bit about like your work? What do you do? What you do? Mm-hmm. Of course. So I'm a dietitian. So we like the medical nutrition people. So people get confused between dietitians and nutritionists and nutritional therapists, but dietitians are the ones who work in hospitals and work with sick people. So if you want nutrition support for a condition that you would see a doctor for, you need a dietitian. We're the only ones with medical training. So I, as all dietitians do, certainly in the UK, I started my career in the NHS. So I worked alongside doctors and nurses in hospitals in the UK. Um, and I eventually specialised in bowel conditions. And from there, I moved into academia. So I was a lecturer and researcher for five years, most recently at King's College in London. And then I quit my job and I set up my business about two years ago now. So I now run a company called City Dietitians and we provide evidence-based nutrition solutions to individuals. So I only see bowel patients and people with bowel problems. So individuals, uh, companies, so I do consultancy for lots of different companies, all sorts of things from designing vitamins to helping them to work on apps. Um, and then we also do a lot of work with the media. Amazing. Awesome. Wow. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> I already know what I'm going to talk about. So uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, did you hear about the whole blood-based diet thing? I don't know if you've heard. I'm pretty sure you've heard about this. No? As in the blood group diet? Or? Yeah, the blood group. Yeah. So if you're like, uh, would you like to explain it quickly? Mm-hmm. So there's no evidence base to it. So I've never learned it academically. I've seen it uh, in the press and the media and I've seen it having some exposure. Um, but basically it's a, a theory that your blood group determines what types of food you should eat. And I believe that that theory goes down to what you're, genetic, what you're genetically predisposed to have been exposed to when you were evolving, let's say. Um, so you then, it says that people who have, who have particular blood groups should eat these foods and people who have a different blood groups shouldn't, shouldn't eat those foods. And it's all kind of trying to decide around those kinds of things. I mean, there's some interesting stuff in there, but we are all such a mix of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and humans now that actually our blood group tells us very little about our diet when we were evolving mm-hmm. because it was such a, a mishmash um, genetically. So whilst there's some interesting theories there and some people might find it helps them in some way, there's no good evidence that it's anything that we should be adhering to as a population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, there right. we go. So that, that, this question goes out to all my friends <laughs> yeah. who've been telling me this morning mm-hmm. about blood-based diet. Well, yeah, I, yeah. F- I feel like people are trying to find diets in so many different ways. Like, yeah, maybe it's by your blood group or maybe you should try this keto meal or this veggie meal, right? What, sh- what is, <laughs> all right, what should we eat? I don't know. So humans on a really basic level need all the things that you guys already know they need. So we need lean protein, from good quality sources, whether those are mostly plant-based sources with some animal sources or the other way around, it's kind of up to you. We need plenty of fruits and vegetables, plenty, plenty, as many as you can get in your face. We need nuts and seeds, whole grains, 
those things, fish is so important for humans. We need these really basic things that everybody already knows. The problem with nutrition is that everyone wants to find this special, exciting new thing that's going to solve all the problems and everyone is so different, right? So mm. there's no magic solution to anything. And the whole of the scientific medical community and the scientific nutrition community all can see that things like a basic Mediterranean diet, sort of that way of eating is the best way of eating for everybody. It's been the same for ages. The best research we have demonstrates that repeatedly. It's just that the world, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion and everyone's body is different. So we all respond differently. And so everyone seems to, it's, everyone likes to be very polarized and tribal with their nutrition. Interesting. All right. So obviously we're still going through a pandemic, right? And, uh, well, nutrition is very important for the human body, especially when people are sick, regardless of what disease they have. But uh, speaking strictly about COVID and viral diseases, is there, is there a suggested meal or types of food that we should increase just to avoid, you know, falling through the, the immunity? Or just, mm -hmm. Yeah, like helping boosting our immunity towards COVID or... So the very most important thing to say is that nobody has a clue about what to do about COVID. So anyone who is telling you they've, mm -hmm. they've got a magic pill, magic supplement, magic diet, magic mm -hmm. diet plan, anything that's going to help you with COVID is lying to you and is preying on your fears. We have absolutely no idea what dietary mm -hmm things are going to make any difference at all with COVID. What we do know is the basics of how our immune system works and what our immune system needs to work as well as possible from a nutrition perspective. So there's good research around that. We know that your immune system benefits. So if we think about an immune response, what your body is doing is having to generate new cells. You're asking your body to generate new cells out of something. And your immune system, your immune cells need to be made out of things like vitamin C and zinc and proteins, so amino acids that you take in from your diet. So if you have a really good diet that's high in vitamins and minerals, then we know that you have all of the things that you need to launch a good quality immune response when, some, when a bug comes along. So what happens is your, your body is presented with a virus or a bacteria, and your body has to generate new cells to fight off that infection. Mm -hmm. And those new cells are generated from nutrition, from the food that you eat. And they're generated mostly from these kinds of vitamins and minerals and proteins and that sort of thing. If you eat a well-balanced diet and you're getting plenty of vitamins and minerals from uh, plants and things like that, then you should be completely fine in terms of all the reserves you need. If you're cutting out food groups, if you are a vegan or plant-based person and those kinds of things, then you are at higher risk of deficiency. So we need to be a little bit more careful. The other thing that makes a big difference to our immune response is our gut health. So our gut bacteria provide a sort of first line of defense against uh, bugs, bacteria, viruses. Yeah. And we have a microbiome in our mouths and in our esophagus and in every part Natural of the Natural flora. Yeah, but the one that we talk about the most is in our large bowel. And that still has a big role to play in our immunity, in our overall immunity. So our microflora coat our mouth and our esophagus and then all the way through our digestive tract. And the ones that live in our colon they actually release neurotransmitters, they release chemicals that help to launch a more effective immune response in, in, like in presence of any kind of bug. Um, but they also provide this sort of natural defense. So we have to look after the bacteria that live in our bodies and, and in how, our colons in particular. And how do you do that? How do you work on your gut bacteria? So our gut bacteria, 
like to eat plants mm -hmm. and they like to eat lots of different plants. So what, the, what we know about good quality gut bacteria or good gut bacteria, so the gut bacteria profile that's associated with the lowest risk of disease, the best immunity, all of these kinds of things is diversity. So you want the greatest number of bacterial diversity that you can get in your colon. And what happens is so many of us kind of stick to eating three or four different types of vegetables, three or four different types of fruits. And actually, if we can massively increase our plant diversity in our diet, including nuts and seeds and whole grains and all these kinds of things, we're going to be feeding a more diverse range of bacteria, which is then going to benefit us in lots and lots of different wow. ways mm -hmm. and ways that we don't even really understand yet. Does yogurt help, by the way? I, I really want to know, does yogurt help <laughs> in the bacterial situation in the, in the intestines? Yeah, so there are two different sides to this. One is that so we all, all already have a microbiome. We already have a load of bacteria that live in our yeah. colon, in our bodies generally. Um, so when we put things like yogurt in and things like kefir, any fermented foods, sauerkraut's quite popular now. Um, they're all that kombucha in this country is really popular. So any of these fermented foods that we put into our body, as well as tablet form probiotics, they're all probiotic bacteria. So what we're doing is trying to ingest good bacteria. Mm -hmm. Now, those good bacteria that are in food products are likely to have a beneficial impact on your mouth and on your esophagus and maybe in your stomach. And the ones that are wrapped in milk proteins, sometimes they make it through to your colon. So yogurt and some of the milk probiotic drinks can make it through to your colon alive, but most of them won't. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is that we can feed them with the prebiotic bacteria. So we can feed the ones we've already got and get the good ones to proliferate and the not so good ones to die off. And the way that we do that is by eating lots of plants. Interesting. Okay, I want to pull it back a little bit because this is a discussion uh, that's been basically like, it's become a, it's like on the verge of being an all out war between meat eaters and vegetarians. <laughs> <laughs> <I'll honestly>, <laughs> Dude, sure. you have not, me and my, my sister's a vegetarian, right? Or <laughs> I think it's pescatarian. She only eats fish. They eat fish. So, okay. uh, mm -hmm. no, I think she stopped. I think she's now a total vegetarian. And I have this fight with her all the time about eating meat is good and being a vegan or a vegetarian is not as good as you think it is. For like health, so, you mean? Yeah, like health-wise speaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now that we have a professional, you know, mm -hmm. dietitian and nutritionist, let's settle the score right here, right now. Is being vegan or vegetarian good or not? So nobody has ever said that from a nutrition perspective that everyone should be vegan. Mm. no nutritional scientist i know would say it's absolutely the right thing for absolutely everybody in the world and everyone would be healthier if they were vegan regardless of what you might read so what we do know is that everyone exists on this kind of spectrum in terms of their genetic profile some people are going to benefit massively from including a little bit more meat in their diet and some people will benefit massively in terms of their long and short-term health from including far less meat in their diet than they do the problem is we all polarize ourselves and we say I'm either this or I'm this and we label ourselves, which can then lead to us making compromises, right? So it might be that uh, you feel like, oh, I feel like I'm lacking energy a little bit, maybe I need a bit more red meat. But if you've called yourself a vegan, you can't do that because it affects your, you know, the, the things that you've decided about yourself. So there's what we what we absolutely know is that everyone should eat more plants and if but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone should cut out all animal products and replace mm. everything with plants so there's no um strong evidence that on mass we should all turn into vegans or even vegetarians 
when you do follow a plant-based diet, you generally need to supplement with other things and that can have an environmental impact, that can have a nutritional impact and you know, it depends on what you're trying to achieve really. Obviously people who are vegan for uh, ethical reasons or for religious reasons, that's a really different thing and that's a choice you've made for, for a different reason. But if you're doing it for health, just remember that you need to include some flexibility and if you did have eggs a couple of times a week or some fish a few times a week and or some fish a few times a week, you'd be much, much better off nutritionally and you wouldn't need supplementation, which ultimately is probably the answer. Um, I want to ask about supplements. So is it, if I take like a vitamin C or like a multivitamin supplement, right? Is that um, like oh, good for me <laughs> or is it bad for me or is it any different than getting those vitamins through eating like food? So if you think that on a daily basis, you eat all the foods you need to eat to have a perfectly balanced diet and you're not doing that stuff like going out and getting drunk all the time, which uses up a lot of nutrition or exposing yourself to lots of pollution all the time or doing loads and loads of really intense exercise, which again uses up a lot of nutrition and is nutritionally expensive, then there's no reason to think that you would need a nutritional supplement. The reality is that most of us live in a world where some days we eat a pretty rubbish diet. Some days we do have a lot of exposure to different uh, environmental pollutants and things like that. Some days we have a drink. Some days we do lots of things that can potentially impact our nutritional well-being. And during those periods, so for, for me, for example, when I'm really busy, I definitely don't prioritize eating as well as I normally would. So I may find that I'm having to run to the shop and grab something for my lunch instead of cooking for myself. I might find that I'm having to grab something on the way home to have for myself rather than being able to cook for myself at home. What do you grab? What do you grab when you're on your way yeah, home? Yeah, I, I was going to ask. What's this drive through you're going through? I'll come back to it. So when we do that, then it is useful to have a nutritional supplement as a safety net. So taking a good quality A to Z multivitamin during those times is a good safety net because it just means that we're getting everything that we need and we know that we're not compromising things like our immune health or becoming anemic or any of those things that can make us feel less well. So I would say that during those times when you are less not looking after your body as well, and it might be that you've got a new family and you're just running around all the time, or it might be that you're a student and you can't afford to eat as well as you think you might need to, then taking a, a good quality A to Z multivitamin is a good idea and may well be of great benefit to you and prevent lots of different things. If you are someone who looks after your body every day, does loads of good stuff and all that stuff, then you probably don't need to worry. Mm -hmm. Similarly, it's really important to point out that no amount of like pills and potions and you know powders and whatever else can outrun a crap diet, a bad diet, sorry, uh, too no, much stress <laughs> yeah. exercise. So if you're really stressed, you're eating badly and you're not doing any exercise, you could take all the vitamin supplements in the world and you would not get any benefit from them because you have to still do all the lifestyle stuff alongside. I mean, we have a saying in Arabic, something is better than nothing, you know? And when you're busy doing this all day, and you're not, you have no time to get up and cook or, you know, I mean, I might as well just take them, you know? instead yeah, of just yeah. not taking it at all but no yeah i agree with you it's better to cook and get yourself naturally instead of just popping all these different vitamin pills and gummy bears and whatever but what i really want to know is what is it that you always eat like what's your go-to drive-through restaurant so i'm a massive foodie i love food like food makes me very happy it's a big part of my life i love to cook i love to cook my friends okay. I love eating out in restaurants so i'm really into eating generally when I'm at home, I generally try to be 
but mainly vegetarian but when i go out i eat whatever i want and if i've got friends coming over like my friends came over the other day um just a couple of friends obviously covid safe and uh we had some slow roast lamb which i made which i loved making and some salads and stuff like that so that that's my so kind good. of go-to thing yeah. when i'm on my own and i'm thinking about what i'm gonna eat like tonight i've got nothing in the house so i need to think about grabbing something from the shop normally i'll grab if i'm feeling good i'll grab something like a bag of stir-fried vegetables and a piece of salmon or something like that and i'll get some coconut milk on that and right. make some like thai curry type situation if i'm feeling lazy okay. or, like, i really love um, spicy food so i might order a curry that kind of thing is nando still a thing in the uk yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. <laughs> you have to, whenever, if you ever go to the UK or if oh, I ever Nando's. take you, we, dude, Nando's is like <laughs> the greatest thing to ever come out of the UK. That's so funny that you think that. In the UK, it's like super low end. Like if you're going to go to Nando's, I'd be like, no chance. I, I know, no I know. To them, it's like KFC to us, you know? It's like, it's like <laughs> ah, whatever. We'll just, you know, we'll just get KFC. But to me, Nando's is just mind blowing. What is it? <laughs> It's a whole restaurant built around chicken, and it's not even fried. Whoa. Yeah. Like, nice. Very, very chicken. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. But yeah, thank God Nando's is still a thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you're saying, you're saying all this, Sophie. I'm just thinking of like, I mean, Ali and I are like pretty healthy. We're just young guys. We eat maybe not the greatest foods, but we're pretty healthy. Think of all those people that live on McDonald's and live on like whatever, Carl's Jr., and that's just all they eat. Um, <laughs> Just because, I don't know, they don't have the time or they can't afford any different. How, like, bad is it? I want to know more about, like, the people you work with. Like, why do people come to you usually? Sure. So that's kind of two questions. So I'll start mm-hmm. with the first one. Um, those people who, unfortunately, are trapped in a system which is largely um, driven by governmental decisions, particularly in this country, mm-hmm. um, who are trapped in a system where they can, uh, you know, have to rely heavily on processed food and takeaway food. Um that's a situation that's not something that people bring on themselves. It's something that happens to them as a result of societal problems. And what I would say is that their long, their life expectancy is, is much shorter than other people. Mm. Their risk of things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease is much, much greater. Um, Their risk of catching diseases is much greater and communicable diseases that we should be able to prevent. And so the impact of that kind of uh, eating pattern is, is, significant and you know Shorten's life um, expectancy oh yeah absolutely so living in wow, london okay. there are pockets of kind of postcode areas where your life expectancy may be significantly lower because of the income group that you're associated with and oh, that, wow. that area might be very very close to an area where the life expectancy has increased by something like 15 years it's a huge huge difference in life expectancy between rich and poor in lots and lots of countries. And I can only really speak about England because it's the only one that I know well, but ultimately, yeah, your poverty, your, your income has a huge impact on your life expectancy. And a big part of that will be the dietary choices that you're exposed to and the dietary decisions that you have access to. Interesting. Uh, so what is it that like, that's so bad about these different, uh, like ordering restaurants? Like for me, cause I, I won't lie about this. When I, whenever I go back to the uni life, you know, all I do and all I eat is like food from outside, right? As well, like what makes it worse is I am already predisposed to diabetes genetically. And like, sometimes I just don't know what to do. So what do you suggest is the ultimate plan to, you know, stop eating from outside and start eating healthier for people like me who don't usually have the time? 
yeah I mean it's tough it's really hard and you have to decide whether you're going to prioritize it or not really and you know when you're young you can kind of get away with it a bit and it's kind of okay and you can make up for some lost time the key the real like the most important thing is that you offset some of the worst choices the bad choices with enough fruit and vegetables so say you especially at your age if you were eating say you're having more processed meat than you know you should have you're having more takeaway food and more saturated fat than you know is good for you but you're eating a ton of fruit and vegetables you would probably be able to offset it and as long as later on in your life when things are a little bit easier you make better decisions you probably get away with it that's a whole okay. <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's all and you gave I, me a hope yes. for the future but so, yes go i want to anyway. continue with the the second part which is like what why do people come to you what's like is there something underlying or is it case by case yeah so i almost exclusively see patients with gut disorders so they will mostly have things like ulcerative colitis or crohn's disease or they'll have had bowel cancer and had to have surgery or they'll have had some kind of big surgical disaster and so their gut doesn't really do very much at all they might not have very much bowel left at all so we feed them in different ways and keep them hydrated in different ways so my caseload is almost entirely uh, surgical patients or gut patients who've had surgical problems uh, or had reason to have surgery um, that's sort of honed in in terms of my speciality and the things i'm good at and the companies that i work with and the exposure that i get the other people who i work with are men and women but primarily women who have sort of yo what we call yo-yo dieted through their life so they've really got a troubling relationship with food mm -hmm. and they know that they sh what they should eat we all know what we should and shouldn't eat there's no secrets despite what you might read um it's why it's difficult or why you can't eat healthily that's the problem and that's all about you know your relationship with food why it's difficult what lifestyle factors are making give putting barriers in place for you to be able to eat healthily and how we can overcome those um you have a great relationship with food you say you love cooking you love eating why do people go to war with their food? So for women, and I can only really speak for women because I know that it's different for men now, but women have been exposed to this from, from much earlier age. If you think about the way that we speak about girls, if you saw a little girl in a dress or if you saw your nieces and nephews or whoever, we're very likely to make everything that we say about a woman, about her image, about even from a very young age. So you're most likely to say to a girl, you're, you're so pretty, your hair looks lovely, I love your dress. It's very much about a girl's appearance, whereas for men, now boys, it's like, that's a cool truck, what's on that on your t-shirt? We generally don't engage them, we don't talk about their appearance in the same way. So from a very young age, women are conditioned to believe that their appearance is the most important thing about them, if not the only important thing about them. So then girls sort of fall into traps where we talk about food and dieting and weight and they pick up magazines and see pictures of girls that have this very specific body type that's unachievable for most women. And we end up in this space where we suddenly think, well, I don't look like her and that's how I'm supposed to look. So I should start dieting. Dieting starts, I mean, I was doing a, a talk to a community group in the boxing gym that I'm part of last year. And a girl who was about 10 was asking me if fruit would make her fat. These conversations are happening in very, very young girls. and Ten-year-old. Ten-year-old scared of fruit making her fat. Number one, scared of being fat. Number two, scared of fruit making fruit. her fat. Fruit, wow. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, we're always told here, you know, eat more fruits if you <laughs> want to lose more weight. And now it's like... It has carbs, it has sugar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she's heard, she's picked up on this crap messaging that we mm -hmm. put out there around sugar and fruit and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, girls get exposed to this stuff super, super young. They end up feeling like their bodies are not, not good enough, ever good enough. Doesn't matter how much weight they lose or how big they are, they're never good enough. And, and for a lot of the women who I work with, this might continue until they're in their 60s and 70s. 50s, 60s, 70s is kind of uh, when a lot of women go, I don't want to feel like this anymore. It's nonsense. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. That is happening earlier now, I'm pleased to say. And I certainly see a lot of women in their 30s who've had enough of that stuff as well. But you can imagine the amount of mental energy that takes up hating your body, Am I eating carbs this week? Am I not eating carbs? Should I eat this? Should uh -huh. I not eat that? What should I do? My body looks awful. I work, I'm currently working with a woman who is super successful. She, she's CEO of a business and she set up a new startup. She's killing it. She's got a family who adore her. She, when I say this woman is beautiful, she is so beautiful, but she's about five kilos heavier than she wants to be. And it is all she can think about. She hates herself and she beats herself up about it every day. There is no man in the world who's walking around five kilos heavier than he wants to be thinking that that has any impact on his worth or anything like that. <laughs> 10 kilos. I'm hating my life every day. Just saying. It's, but, yeah, I think no, it's, it's tougher, it's, but I think a man is, in her position at his age mm. would not care. Would yeah, no, no, I, I'd agree with you. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd agree with you 100%. I mean, you're here, you're, you're, we're looking at you right now, we're talking, you're not that, yeah, not exactly. putting or something. Mm -hmm. also, it's not, mm -hmm. If you had achieved all of the things that she had, and you had a wife who loved you, and children who loved you, and you were still killing it in your business and doing amazingly, if you were just carrying five kilos extra, you would not be worrying about it. But women, for women, particularly of that age, I think there is this perception that if you're you know, that your image is the most important thing about you. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's this new thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. Sorry, you were saying? I was just saying it's poisonous. Like that, that diet culture stuff we call it is, is poisonous and it, it uh, wastes so much mental energy. Like yeah. It's just, it's criminal. With diets, it's also it can go the other way too. That's why we need to maintain balance, especially I'm sure you've heard of it by now. Like if it reached us, it definitely reached you guys in the UK, which is the body shaming and anti-body shaming movement now i'm all for you know not shaming someone because they're overweight but i think people are starting to lack the idea of okay don't make fun of someone because they're fat but don't encourage them to be fat i don't know what your stance is on this i really want to hear it as a nutritionist so what do you think about it it's really difficult. So we should never talk about people's weight ever. Uh, it's not anyone's business. It's not your business, whether I've lost weight or put on weight or anything like that. It's often, and we've just seen a great example of this in, in, in the world, or sometimes when people lose weight, it's not because they're healthy, it's because they're dying or because they're very unhealthy and they might not want to talk to you about it. So the way that we celebrate weight loss in Western culture particularly is just poisonous and it's bad for people. It's very um, toxic. Mm -hmm. What I would say is that body positivity is brilliant and we should certainly be seeing much, much more of normal, healthy bodies in the media, advertising clothes, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever else you're consuming media. We should absolutely see more normal, healthy bodies for sure. Um, what I will say is that obesity is not benign. So we can't pretend that someone who is has a body mass index of over 30 is still you know, a very healthy person, we must consider that obesity does carry risks from, you know, the statistics don't lie on this. It's very obvious. That said, if you were a very underweight person or a slim person, but you didn't exercise and you ate loads of rubbish and you didn't look after your body versus having a higher BMI, but not smoking, exercising, doing lots of exercise, 
then probably your health risk factors are roughly the same, mm -hmm. but carrying excess body weight does come with risk factors. Um, so I am pro us seeing healthy bodies. I am pro us seeing all kinds of different bodies, but I do think we need to be a little bit careful about um, the glorification of obesity, just because it can have an impact on people young people making decision not to lose weight when actually it might really help them if they did lose some weight in a healthy way and by avoiding the restriction and some of the awful stuff we see it's a very delicate area but i i do feel the need always to say obesity isn't benign regardless we'd love to celebrate all bodies pretty much yeah yeah I, i'm glad i heard it from an expert I clarified it. Mm -hmm. because yeah it's it's i'm glad you did say this because like it is getting out of control now like I'll give you an example. So my baby cousins, right? Well, he's not a baby anymore. He's like 16, but I, like he is overweight. And I do talk to him about, you know, you might as well lose it. Now I pass on to him what my elders has passed on to me, which is lose weight while you're young, because it's harder if you get older. Right. I've heard like when I was a kid, I was chubby and I've heard this a lot of times of basically lose it while you're young. Because if you get older, it's a lot harder to lose weight. Is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a real biological change that happens in men and women. But unfortunately for women, it happens a lot earlier. So most women around the age of 24, 22, 23, 24, their metabolism just slows into kind of this adult rate metabolism. Whereas for men, that generally happens around 27, 28, 30 is like a classic age. And I see lots of men who turn around and say, oh, when I was younger, I could eat whatever I wanted to and I never put on weight and now I eat the same things and suddenly I I'm putting on weight and they can't understand it. But for women, that happens much earlier and we kind of adjust a bit more uh, quickly to it, I suppose. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Your metabolism absolutely takes a nosedive around for men around the age of 30. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, 30? So like 27, 28, 29, 30 is kind of the age where men generally, it's all genetically predetermined, obviously. 10 more years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 10 more years <laughs> and is, so if, if you're working out when you're young and you're healthy when you're young does your body stay generally in that body shape as you grow older is there like a like an image of your body in the shape or i don't know how it works mm -hmm. so there is some um theories around set point theory around your weight um and we, we think that's largely genetically predetermined mm -hmm. what we'll say is that you know if you train when you're younger and you're you habitually train then your muscles are more ready for it you you know you've got a bit more muscle memory there um and the the opposite of that is that when you lay down fat cells they all they don't go anywhere so they're just they fill up we, we grow more and more and more fat cells the more weight we put on and then we empty them but the empty fat cell remains and is ready to suck up the fat and get and grow out again. So when we're young and we lay down lots of fat cells, it does make it a little bit harder for us to maintain our weight later in life, but it's not impossible to control that and maintain it. But healthy lifestyle factors when you're young are associated with good outcomes later and lower risk of obesity. Awesome. Cool. Interesting. All right. The, uh, there's also this thing where people do like, it's like they have a cheat day. It's like one day a week, they diet all week. And one day a week, they like go on and have a feast or, you know, they just eat loads and loads of food. So is this really a thing? Because I had this argument with one of my friends. He always asks, like, I don't know how to lose weight. And I always respond to him the same way my dad responded to me, which is eat less, walk more. Right. So 
I like this is even how I lost a lot of my weight, which is basically I ate less. I ate the same thing that I usually eat, just in a lesser quantity, and I walked more per day, you know. But they do this thing where it's like cheat days, and I don't know how like to respond to them. So, what do you think about the whole cheat day situation? So there's a saying, and I don't think I'll be able to get it right, but it's really true. And that's if that diets are like relationships. If you have to cheat in them, they're probably not very healthy. And <laughs> whoa, yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go wow. yeah that's that like that was brilliantly that's put by you good. i have mm-hmm. to say but yeah that's very <laughs> very true say, if we think mm. about your calorie requirement over the week as mm. being you know a set amount of calories that you require in a whole week so if you've got let's say two thousand calories a day so you've got fourteen thousand calories to play with in a week you can spend a little bit each day you can spend two thousand calories each day or you can spend a thousand calories each day and then have however many calories spare to eat all on one day essentially a calorie deficit is a bit like spending money you need to budget for your calories and you might decide to have much less calories on some days and much more calories on another day but the problem with the problem with that becomes there's a mindset thing so there's a restriction thing these foods are bad these foods i shouldn't have if i have these foods i'm cheating there's often a thing that goes into that which is if i eat these foods i'm bad I'm bad because I'm eating this. Oh, aren't I naughty? Look how bad I'm being. All that kind of stuff. And actually what you eat has no uh, bearing on what, what qualities you have as a person. You know, it doesn't mean that you are bad. What you eat I, doesn't I, mean that you are bad as a person. We need to be quite careful with that kind of language because it really feeds into some really negative emotions about ourselves when we can't necessarily control it. Like humans are hardwired to want to eat high fat and high carbohydrate foods. That is what our bodies are driving us to do. And so when we resist that all the time and force ourselves to, it's hard work. And then when we do eat those foods, we do sometimes feel like we're bad and out of control and that can lead to some binging and some different behaviors that are really unhealthy. So ultimately, the best thing to do is try to work on your relationship with food and think about food as being relatively neutral and try to think about what your body actually wants like your brain always wants donuts and cakes but your body won't thank you for them and that's we need to think about balancing both of those things and letting the the right person be in control most of the time it is is. all right i'm gonna do something sure no one has ever done on any podcast which is basically we're gonna calculate my bmi (laughs) right here right now (laughs) now here's the thing i don't know how to do that right so how do you calculate your bmi so you need your weight in kilos. Okay, so that's like 122. And you need your, well, do you want me to do it? And then you need your height. <laughs> yeah, please do. My height in what centimeters? In meters. In meters. I'm 1.93. And hang on. 1.93. And tell me what your weight was again. 122 kg. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a big boy. So your BMI is currently... 32.7 so 33 which puts you just in the obese category all right i mean i'm not gonna lie. i'm a little disappointed <laughs> myself i thought i lost a lot of weight but you know what i went from 140 kg to 122 amazing good for you good for you, just, you and know. you know what body mass index is something that's interesting to talk about because we use it for statistical reasons in populations so it gives us mm-hmm. some good statistical data in big population groups but in individual cases, it's not very useful for understanding what weight somebody should be. 
So it helps us to categorize and analyze big data sets around or people who have a BMI of over 30, they are at higher risk of these diseases and these things. But ultimately on an individual basis, it's not very helpful. And I'm someone who is very naturally very heavy. Mm -hmm. I would, if I was, a, if I had a BMI of say 19, which would still be healthy, I would be skeletal. I would be like, my body part percentage would probably be about 12 and that wouldn't be healthy at all for a woman. So, you know, we have this balance that we need to strike with our own body composition, which is genetically predetermined. I know, but let's be honest. Do I look like someone who's overweight? <laughs> Not from this part Not of you that we can see. No. I mean, there you go. I, I mean, I'm a little chopped. I can't see your lie. stomach though. <laughs> hey, Not putting that on the show, okay? <laughs> watch it <laughs> now but i mean even my stomach it's not that big like i mean a lot of people are like they think bmi is really the thing you know and it's what these doctors are always mm -hmm. talking about but it's it's not really like uh, no, it's great if i was shorter i mean i would be like a circle literally you know but because of my height it really does help yeah of course so and the taller yeah, you are, the more calories you can afford to eat and the more energy you can have in your diet because you, you require more energy. So, yes, yeah, BMI is great for analyzing data sets. It's not great on an individual basis, and I don't take pictures right. of it generally. A lot of people are like, life's not fair. This guy has natural metabolism and his genetics are perfect and he's tall. And like, I can't eat like a whatever sandwich without gaining like 10 pounds. I don't know what- well, Try being a woman, both of you. We need so many more calories less less than you guys. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. That's it. Can't, that's it. <laughs> that's but no, uh, okay, here's, here's what I do want to know since you brought it up. Mm -hmm. uh, metabolism. So how exactly do you define it in the mm -hmm. nutrition world? So your metabolism is- everything that's going on in your body. So all of the metabolic processes that your body is undertaking every day from pumping your blood around your body to creating enzymes and generating you know, neurotransmitters and all the things that go on in your body all the time. Um, your body naturally requires a lot of energy just to maintain, just to keep you alive, just to make sure your organs are functioning. So most people's what we call basal metabolic rate. So the rate at which your body burns energy, even if you're just lying in bed and doing absolutely nothing, not even blinking, that's usually around, so around 1400 calories for most people. So everyone needs that amount of energy and you can get that energy from your fat stores and from your protein stores in your body. So you can burn your muscle to make an, enough amino acids to generate new things and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, you need to get that from your food every day in order to make sure that you've got enough energy and nutrients to turn over all the things that you need to be doing. Some people naturally have a higher basal metabolic rate than other people, and that's genetically determined. It's also determined in part by how much lean body mass you have. So when you carry a lot of muscle, muscle generates quite a lot, it requires quite a lot of energy to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And so you have a higher basal metabolic rate, you have a higher requirement for energy. And that's why people who have big, big muscle mass can eat a lot more than people who have a lot more fat mass, even if they weigh roughly the same. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's roughly what metabolism is all about. I mean, roughly, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah. I want to I ask you, Sophie, a question. We've talked, we've argued about this before, but I guess now there's an expert on we can ask. Um, can you... We talked about in the future, you can like eat a pill and that'll have all your nutrients and that's it. You won't oh, have to eat food I anymore. I'm going to bring this up. Is that, um, could, could that be the case? Like in the future where you can just like literally eat a pill, have, that has all your nutrients and you can go about your day and you'll be healthy. 
No is the short answer. And the reason for that is because calories and so protein, carbohydrates and fat are all relatively bulky macronutrients that we need. Um, and so you just wouldn't be able to get enough energy in that kind of format. So there's no way that you could get all of the protein you need in that volume. And there's no way you get all the energy that you need in that volume. We do feed people into their veins when their guts have failed and we do all sorts of magic things with nutrition, but that's not going to be a, a possibility in the future for healthy people. It's not what anyone would really want. Which awesome. is exactly what I told Kiss you. Ali, but mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I win in that argument too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we've reached our time yes. limit for today. So is there anything you would like to... Oh yeah, dude. I learned like, so I much. Learned a, I'm gonna oh, go watch this again. You guys have. I'm gonna watch this two, three times. It's so pretty cool. Pretty much, yeah. Because I we learned a lot today, and I'm glad we had uh, you know a nutritious expert and a nutritional dietitian person to come on and you know lay it all down. So, thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything you'd like to shout out or let the world know, or you know? So, um, yeah, I probably should. So I run, my business is called City Dietitians. Um, again, we do product development work. So I do product development consultancy for different companies. I also do one-on-one -on -one clinics. So all my clinics are online at the moment. So I can see people from pretty much anywhere, uh, which is great. So if you've got any gut problems or you want to work on your relationship with food, look us up. We're very happy to book you in and get you seen. Um, what else would I do? I feel like I do lots of things. Just keep me busy. It's at the fine. Moment. You can, yeah, no, <laughs> you, yeah go ahead. And <laughs> we'll you can find all these stuff mm -hmm. in the description below of the video. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for coming. If you reached this part of the episode, I want to say before, I want to ask Sophie, what's oh. your favorite fruit? Fruit? Mm -hmm. uh, do you know what I love? I love orange melon. That's my favorite. I oh. ate so much of it last night. Orange melon. <laughs> melon. There's an orange. Yeah, there's a melon. Ali needs to Google this up. <laughs> here we go. Orange melon. A cantaloupe, I think it is. A cantaloupe. Oh yeah, it I is. I it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's a cantaloupe. Yep. Here, I'll, for anyone who doesn't know what an orange melon is, this is an orange melon right there. Let me oh, just show so you something good. before you go. I've just got All these right. food models delivered for doing some education with children. Let me show you these. I've got some orange right. Go ahead. This is um. This is fake food for teaching children about nutrition. So here's some orange melon. And here Wait, is fake fake or real? hot dog. Uh -huh. Oh, that's <laughs> so cool. Wait, that looks real. Yeah, <laughs> it looks, it so, looks yeah. really real. It's really impressive. Uh -huh. I've got loads of it. That's, that's, that's amazing. Well, as I was saying, if you've reached this part of the episode, please do subscribe, like, you know, mm -hmm. follow, go ahead, follow Sophie on her Instagram, which is in the link. Sophie Dietitian. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I don't know if you've watched any of our old episodes, but generally this is how we sign out. It's a salute to cover the cam and peace.